Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 15th, 2013, episode number 37. This is really cool. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new year and a new episode of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. I've been on hiatus pretty much for two months now, and as a podcaster, I guess I'm a bit of a recluse sometimes. I'll talk to the dynamics of this on the outro and won't dwell on it here, but suffice it to say, I'm happy to be back with you one more time in the BKA Corner. I'm eager to get started, but let me follow some decorum for a podcast and tell you what we have in store for this episode. I attended the American Beekeeping Federation Conference in early January and will give a rundown of the experience and touch upon the highlights. One such highlight, is it possible that they have the real answer for solving the high beetle and varroa mite problems? I'm convinced they really might be onto it and I'll tell you what this is about. This is a must not miss. Speaking of the small hive beetle, we did a feature on it at our last NWNJBA meeting. I'll be sharing some of the highlights and resources. Hive form factors. I have some commentary on the construction of my top bar hive and nuke boxes. And I want to share some discussion about the clear hive concept and foam hive designs seen at the ABF show. For Roundtable, we'll talk about a follow-up to video podcasting. I wanted to touch upon the new beekeeping calendar for New Jersey. A short continuation of what's in store for 2013 that we left and closed our last episode with. And a quick preview of Michael Bush's talk that we saw this past weekend. And we'll get out of here with some optional items that I'll probably throw in somewhere along the end. What comes next? As always, we'll start this episode off with the local hive report. We tucked our hives in for winter about the first week of December 2012, and other than an occasional peak and some placement of fondant, we've left them alone. Last Saturday, we woke up to about six inches of snow. I did go out and check on the hives and took some photos in the picturesque setting. All three hives had some bees doing cleansing flights, so they're still functional, which is good news. For those who have been listening in, you know that I've been doing a little experiment from fall to spring when it comes to feeding. This is for science, and if you're listening in for the first time, I don't recommend you going this route, but I didn't follow the rules for fall. We had a reasonable nectar flow here in our region, and I did not feed our bees. The common story is feed them so they have six to eight frames of honey and they will overwinter just fine. As a recap, my notes from last spring indicated that there was so much honey left over that went unused that I debated if these bees need to be fed at all. And I am doing an experiment for that. I won't purposefully starve our bees and I will feed them fondant and have if need be. That is emergency feeding and still doesn't guarantee me that the bees will survive. But as I said, I'm confident that if we come out of winter with at least one of our three hives, we'll be set back a bit but able to rebuild and recover. So the question is, how is that going? 
So literally on January 1st, I did our first 2013 inspection. On that day, I moved hives one and two to the same spot on our property as hive number three. I had been testing three separate locations and the area for hive three was the best, so I've consolidated. During the move, it was evident that these hives were light, and I mean featherweight. I don't normally get fussy about these things, but I started backtracking on my science experiment, wondering if I'd made a foolish decision. I decided insurance was the way to go, and I got to making some fondant. I followed an excellent recipe from DC Honeybees Online, by the way. And I put a few pounds of fondant on each of the hives, and if anything, I felt better for it. The funny thing is, they've hardly touched the stuff. We've had a few days where it was 50 and 60 degrees, and they could have easily found it and taken it in, but they nibbled on it, they didn't eat it in earnest. On hive 2, my prodigy hive, the fun one that I like, I put the fondant right on top of the brood on the frames, and again, they haven't taken it in. In my experience, if they don't eat it, they don't need it. The good news is that winter of 2012-13 has been consistently cold. Cold to the point where they are on the cluster constantly. And I think that's a good thing for the bees as they tend to become more conservative with their stores. Unlike last winter where there were so many unseasonably warm days and false foraging going on, this year, they're pretty much staying on the cluster and staying put. Now, I've peeked in on them, and the hives are operational. Winter operational, that is. There's an occasional bee or two sneaking out for a cleansing flight, and the undertakers are bringing the expired bees out onto the landing board. Here's a Kevin moment, by the way. If you want to know in winter if your bees are still going, clean off your landing board and then come back and check it. The undertakers generally don't take time off and dying bees don't hesitate to leave. You'll find expired bees on the landing no matter how cold if the hive is operational as a general rule of thumb. If you see this, best bet is the hive is still operating normally. This Kevin moment is over. So even though they are lightweight and still faring well, one day so far it was about 60 degrees and I took the opportunity to put the insulation boxes on the top of all three hives. When I took the lid off the cluster, the cluster was right under the inner cover for all three hives and they were rather, rather large in size for all three. It should be noted that I didn't configure the boxes in the fall to move the brood to the bottom and center. I left them in the top box, so to find them up under the inner cover doesn't mean what it normally means. So let me explain that for those who might not know what I'm talking about. At least in our region, around here, the common wisdom is that you move your bees to the bottom box in the fall and in the center. Then, when they get into the fall nectar flow or you feed them, they store honey in the box right above them. As winter ends and spring approaches, bees move up and into the stores, or so is the common wisdom. Now, I said for science I was going to test not feeding the bees. I am also testing the theory to just leave them flat alone. I suppose 
you're supposed to test one thing at a time, but I broke the rules. I know an old beekeeper who didn't listen to prevailing wisdom in quotes, air quotes, and he didn't feed his bees or move them around at all. He would say, they put it the way they want it. This winter, I'm looking to see if his theory holds true. So I guess if you're keeping score, then you know that I'm wavering a bit on my non-feeding ideas. I'm in uncharted territory here, and I'm so used to the voices in my head that have droned into me that they need 60 to 80 pounds of honey going into winter, or they'll surely starve in New Jersey. I admit, as I said before, that I got cold feed not once, but twice, and you heard it here in this episode in the most previous one. In the late fall, we had a short burst of warm weather, the hives were light, and I put feeders on hive two and three, just as an insurance policy. I did make some sugar water and fed the bees, but they never took any, and I took the feeders off in late winter, still full of liquid. So cold feet episode number one didn't result in them getting fed. Then, as I said in this episode, I made fondant and put a one and a half pound chunk on each hive, but they didn't do anything but nibble on it. My worries aside, they still haven't consumed any meaningful amount of supplemental feed. Given how light the hives were on January 1st, if you'd have asked me on February 15th that whether they'd still be alive, I would have bet against it. But as I've been checking the hives, not only are they alive, the clusters look actually pretty good. Again, I think this is a testament to the fact that the bees are ramped down. They had a good fall nectar flow. They were healthy going in. They probably stored enough fat. Maybe that's the wrong term, but they've changed their bodies to be able to overwinter. They went into that state where they live for months instead of the foraging leaning clean. And they're probably going to make it till spring without intervention. It's not to say that I won't get episode number three and get nervous sometime in March or so. But my general take on this is this. Through observation of the last couple of years, I see the bees foraging as soon as the weather starts to get above 45 degrees. And that means early in March, especially through April, until the nectar flow breaks here in our region, they're out foraging. And where they're finding things, who knows? They could be coming back with old, crusty, moldy, who knows what pollen. But I'm suspecting that they're also finding nectar sources, even though the ground looks barren and dry and brown. Whatever the case was, I start to think, and we were having a discussion this past weekend while riding back from the beekeeping session that we went to go see Michael Bush. Maybe we're giving these bees a false start. And what we mean by that is, if we feed them all these huge stores and they come out and they have tons of liquid honey available to them in the spring and they start to ramp up, maybe they're spoiled. Maybe they really don't need it, but since they have it all sitting there, they're going to go crazy and start consuming it. I don't know. I think I'm off on a tangent here, but just kind of think about that and wonder whether this is the right method. No, I, I'm being far too radical here. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Listen, prevailing wisdom is this. Take care of your bees in July and August. 
Make sure you take care of your mite problems if you have any. Ensure that they have 60 to 80 pounds over winter. Make sure you check on them in the spring. You should not have to do emergency feeding. But if they're light and your nectar flow hasn't come, then you're going to want to check in on feeding them and make sure that you have enough healthy bees and a good queen to go into the season. Standard conventional wisdom, follow it. And then when you get to the point where I am, where you want to get experimental, you could do that on your own accord. But my recommendation is follow the merit guides and follow the directions. Don't do as I say, or do as I do, do as I say, which is follow the conventional wisdom, especially if you're trying to find your way newly in this world. Wow, where the heck did I go on a local hive report? (laughs) All right, let's wrap this up. We'll go to segment number one and bring the magic for this episode. Segment number one, ABF, the experience. So I had the fortune of taking in the American Beekeeping Conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania, January 8th, 9th, around that time frame. And they have so much to cover that we'll bring you information over the next run of episodes out of that. If you've ever taken a lot of pictures or video and put them on your computer with a promise one day that you would process all those, you'll understand the position I'm in. As I tried to record all the sessions and shoot video, I'm a bit compromised as to whether or not I can do any preview of that with the public because I'm sure the ABF folks would not be very happy if they knew I pilfered and filmed all their sessions. I generally do this stuff for my own accord and for the podcast so I can go back and listen, regurgitate, and bring it back to you as meaningful content. That being said, let me just talk about the experience. If you've never been, the ABF conference is an amazing thing to partake in. I've heard year after year from our beekeeping brethren that this is the one place to go to if you ever want to do it. It's rather unusual for me to make a personal investment out of our funds from home. I don't do this for a living. Uh, to go and do this. But the fact of the matter is it was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I rented a hotel room and did something radical and went. And I am that much better for it. Was there a major epiphany? Yeah, I'll get to that in segment number two. But actually, let me just describe the experience. You are in and amongst beekeepers. And primarily, they're commercial-driven folks. And they're important folks. But you're also amongst the scientists and you're amongst the researchers, and you're amongst the vendors, and you're amongst the ABF uh, key people that move and shake the beekeeping industry in the United States and abroad. There's a bunch of different tracks, and the hardest thing, like any really good conference, is trying to figure out what you should go to and eliminate the collateral of what you missed. I think I chose wise, and a lot of times... I'm most interested in the research, and what you find there is you find people who are expressing information about research that hasn't been published yet. So there's a lot of fascinating information there. Now here's the secret for you, the listener. You can go to abfnet.org, abfnet.org, I don't know why they chose that. I'm assuming abf.com or org is uh, missing, but anyway... And you can listen to the recorded sessions on your own. 
They do a great job there, and that's how I found out about this long ago, and I mined the ones from 2010. In 2011, for whatever reason, they had problems, and someone explained that while I was sitting in an orientation, and they didn't get the recordings in. But this year they did, and I noticed recently that they're posted on the website there. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, now I'm a member of ABF, having gone to the conference, and I could see all the recordings, but I'm assuming you, the general public, can go to that website and go to the Hershey event and listen to the recordings. I think they're freely available as they were done in the past. That being said, there are several tracks that they had, serious sideliners, Composium, the Research Path, the General Sessions, and they don't have all the recordings from the different things. So whatever is not posted there, I'll try and go through that and see what I can bring to you to give coverage of what you missed. But the ultimate recommendation is go to this thing. And I'm not a name dropper, but I do understand having done this podcast and uh, having looked at a lot of research and industry information, who's who in beekeeping. And the ironic thing is, you could stand in the Hershey Lodge, as we did, by the fireplace at night, and to your right, is Randy Oliver talking to Marianne Frazier and Sue Kobe. And over to your left is Dr. Eric Musson having a conversation with, you name it, any famous person. Uh, I, I was introduced to probably 15 notable people that if I said the name, you would know it. Dave Tarpey, I did meet Sue Kobe. I met Kim Flottam, you know, and they're all very nice. You get to chat with them you know, and have lunch with them if you so desire and, and um, sit next to them in a seminar. And and then they're speaking in a session somewhere through the weekend or through the week. And it's just an incredible experience to stand in and amongst, especially for me, having read so many research papers and watched stuff and scrubbed it on the Internet. Um, all the people who are generating all this content, they are the people doing it. And you get to learn about the different things like, um, you know, the USDA research facilities and how different operations run and who's funding what and so on. And uh, you are literally on the bleeding edge of all the science. I walked in and the first person I ran across was Dave Mendes. And he was standing in a hallway and his voice is so distinctive that... Um, I walked in and I was looking at my phone texting Sharon to let her know that I had arrived and I could hear him in the background and I knew immediately who it was. He was having a conversation with Dave Hackenberg, who was prevalent throughout the whole show, ran into him, got to talk to him. He's These are the two principles that you see, along with Dennis Van Engelsdorp and some others, in The Vanishing of the Bees. So that's the type of crowd that's milling around here at the show. And next year, the show is in Louisiana. I don't know that I'm going to convince Sharon that I need to get there. Somehow I have to find my way to be a delegate or find a way for the podcast to fund this trip or something like that. But no, I really don't intend on going. But the one experience was just a lifetime experience and really enjoyed it. So if you're getting into this, you're thinking about being a commercial one, or you just want that one time to go get up to speed and be immersed in it, this is certainly a good opportunity for you. And I'll do a plug for the ABF and say that they do hire lobbyists to go and work on behalf of the beekeeping industry 
in Washington, D.C., and it's incredibly important to support them. You could join as a member and get access to their content. Not only do they hold a once-a-year conference like the one that I explained, but they also have routine webinars and seminars and information that's fed through along with alliances with research folks and things like that that um, they provide to their membership all the time. Their website is probably the biggest draw because, quite frankly, like many organizations that drop the ball on this, they have their act together. I, I think they understand and they even expressed as part of the orientation that they know how important it is to provide information and make it accessible to their members. And from what I could see at the ABF website, especially now that I'm a member and can see the other side of things, um, they have their act together and there's there's a lot of information for you, the beekeeper there, if that is what excites you. So. The show general format was they had different seminars, and literally from morning till night, you could go in. They had a great vendor area, pretty much who's who, and almost every kind of technology for beekeeping equipment, including new stuff and, um, you know, common vendors that have every type of device. It's unusual to go to a beekeeping show for me and see things that I've never seen before, how many of you have seen the equipment that they use in commercial shops that they do hundreds and hundreds of frames on? The device is probably 20 feet long. It's all aluminum. It's all automated with chains and motors and whatever. They had those on display there. They had huge honey-producing uh, machines, and uh, it was just neat, again, to be exposed to things. There were fork trucks that you always see in pictures. Maybe you don't get excited about that, but just the fact that you're in that kind of crowding, seeing the equipment of people who do this for a living and, and being able to talk to them, walk right up and have a conversation with somebody about how does this thing work and what does this do? And, you know, for somebody like myself and hopefully for somebody like you, if you're listening to this, that's a pretty fun and exciting environment to be with. Uh, not to mention, we went to dinner with some folks who were beekeepers from Connecticut and I got to meet a gentleman who I had breakfast with on the last day was um, from Nebraska or someplace like that and had a conversation. Uh, it's funny because you meet people who say they have a couple hives and you meet people that that gentleman in particular had thousands of hives. And he just talks to you through breakfast, you know, past the jam and, oh, yeah, I have this problem. So, uh, again, it's just one of those things that's hard to express. But when you're in that environment for a number of days and you get to kind of live in the moment, uh, it sure was fun. Having Alyssa Fine come and do some work with us as the American Honey Queen and our particular association last year, the American Honey Queen program was in full swing at the show. That's where they do the coronation and, and appoint the new ones. And I got to talk to Alyssa and say hello to her again. We got to interview her last year and um, see how that whole process goes down. That's a pretty exciting experience. If you have a daughter and interested in something, um, you know, something different where they want to get involved in a, in a honey queen program they could do it for state or for the abf um, definitely something to aspire to so uh, when you talk about the experience that's really what it was about the immersion of beekeeping for a number of days i went home and my head hurt and again i recorded a lot of the sessions i shot some video at some of the sessions and uh, 
I probably will have a lot to talk about over the next number of episodes as I go back through and try and collate all that stuff. So stay tuned to us and we'll bring you uh, the highlights in particular for ABF. And um, I'm going to hit that with segment number two. When I come back, we'll talk about Dr. Peter Thiel, Mites and Varroa, and this is really cool. I'll explain why I keep saying that in a moment. Segment number two. I attended a Friday afternoon session at ABF, which featured Dr. Peter Thiel from the Agricultural Research Service USDA lab in Gainesville, Florida. What if I told you that it's possible that they might have the answer to solving the hive beetle and varroa mite problems? I'm serious when I say that this is the most promising lead that has come along in a long time. Before I start, let me set the stage for one important piece of the hive beetle information, biology, in case you're not aware. The hive beetle female lays an egg somewhere in the hive, and after it grows to a larvae, the larvae literally crawls out of the hive and into the soil around the hive to pupate. If you can stop them from pupating, you can put a significant dent in the population of hive beetles in your apiary. Now, of course, this does nothing to the adults, which can come from other places and fly right into your bee yard, but it could seriously impact the ability for the hive beetles in your yard to procreate, especially in the hive area. So let me tell this segment in four parts, but first I'll apologize for saying cool so much before I get started. All right, let's go. Part number one. Dr. Teal started his presentation with a discussion about controlling the small hive beetle and the different approaches one might have to consider in solving the problem. Maybe you're familiar with a Japanese beetle bag trap that is sold widely to capture Japanese beetles in a bag. If you are, this part of the presentation will immediately make sense. The USDA lab was working on trying to find something so attractive to hive beetles that it would outcompete beehives for attractiveness, even as much to say that it would pull hive beetles from the hive because it was such a draw. This idea came from Africa where beekeepers were using African banana variants as an attractant and literally pulling hive beetles out of bee yards there. If you weren't aware of this, hive beetles in nature are attracted to decaying fruits, melons, flowing sap, and fungi. It's really what they do, think old watermelons as an example. Like the wax moth is the cleanup crew for old comb and beehives, small hive beetles live to munch on decaying watermelon. The problem is, the beehive has an odor very much akin to the same attractant in decaying watermelons as an example. So you could surmise by this description that the hive beetles have found a good home in our hives. So what was the experiment? The USDA team wanted to find something that could be so attractive to beetles to entice them out of the hive. They started with a commonly available fruit in Florida, a cantaloupe. They tried using cantaloupe as a draw and found it worked better than any lure they could create. However, 
with the cantaloupe there was a problem. The melons only had a certain window of attractiveness when they were at their peak attractant stage, but leave them in the Florida sun for even a small amount of time and they turn from decaying to spoiled, sometimes in a matter of minutes. They needed a better bait. Then they tried key apples that worked great, better than the cantaloupe as a lure, but still it was plagued with ripening problems. They took the key apples back to the lab, and after some application of chemistry, they were able to isolate the attractant and build a synthetic equivalent, which they can now use as a lure without any difficulties of ripening and decaying. Dr. Teal suggested that one potential use for this as a beekeeper is to set up a trap in the apiary before bees are brought in and lure all the beetles in the area in preparation for setting up colonies. This will draw the hive beetles that are emerging from the ground and I assume that you could use these out in the outskirts of your apiary and lure the beetles out of your hives once they are set up. Remember the comment about setting them up at your neighbors? He finished off the commentary with suggesting that they are working on some sort of solution and that the attractant would last somewhere about two months in the wild. Smart stuff and darn cool. Part 2. Dr. Teal then moved on to a fight against controlling pupation in a different way. His next topic was on the relatively mechanical means of controlling the larvae by preventing them to get to the soil in the first place. He showed a bottom board contraption that had a capture chamber at the landing board made of a material that was plexiglass. It had two small strips for the bees to land on and to use for exit and entry. The premise behind this design is that any small beetle larvae trying to escape the hive could not get past this chamber and would drown in the oil. Think of a moat, so to speak. This in itself, I guess, is not a novel idea. In fact, you could see in commercial catalogs people solving small hive beetle problems in this way. However, I've seen a bunch of different traps trying to do this same idea, and this one, of all the designs, seemed the best suited for succeeding at solving the problem. Everyone in the room was chatting amongst themselves about what a good idea this was. He mentioned that they have a company interested in commercializing this product, and they'll be making one out of blown plastic instead of plexiglass. Cool, right? But wait, there's more. Part number three, the carcass discovery. I'm not sure what led the research team to know why to do this, as he didn't go into it, but Dr. Teal shared that they were doing tests of pupation of hive beetles in soil. Specifically, they discovered that soil that had remains of hive, old hive beetle carcasses was a natural repellent to larvae looking to go into the ground to pupate. They performed an experiment where they set up a container with clean soil on one side and soil that had remnants of hive beetle carcasses on the other. When they let the larvae loose, in every case the larvae chose the new soil and would not pupate in the old soil. In fact, they showed that 
If the larvae had no choice but to go to old soil, it would not pupate at all. It would crawl around and crawl around and eventually desiccate and die. Desiccate meaning to dry up. And as he said, this is cool. To emphasize the point, he showed an experiment which he referred to as the line in the pan, a play on a line in the sand. They took a large tub and down the center, from one edge to the other, they poured a stack of ground-up dead beetle carcasses edge to edge. Then they dumped a couple thousand larvae on one side of the pan and watched to see where they went. To get to the other side of the pan, they had to go through the beetle carcasses. They were stacked ten high, but not one of the beetles went to the other side at all. The photo in the slide was such a statement. As he repeated, this was a really cool find. Then he went on to explain that they were able to do an extract of the old beetle carcasses using pentane, and they painted half of a disc with the solution. On the slide he showed during the presentation, it looked like a large disc the size of a pizza. They put a pile of live beetle larvae on one side, and like the line in the pan, they did not cross over to the treated side. Then, in a second experiment, they took the live beetle larvae and put it in the middle of the disc, and all of the larvae scooted to the non-treated side. Again, his feedback was, and we agree, this is cool. They have the chemistry worked out, and they're working on making a natural product that can be used as a deterrent to small hive beetles to prevent them from going in the soil. No pupation, no hive beetle adults. That's the end of part number three. But wait, there's more. Now to part number four, and let me make it abundantly clear. I am now switching from small hive beetle to varroa mite. Someone in the USDA lab postulated, what is it that the varroa mite is attracted to inside the hive? Is it the bee? Is it the larvae? Is it the wax? Is it the honey capped brood? Bee bread? The simple question is, they don't know. They weren't really sure. Dr. Teal professed that there wasn't any data out there to answer this simple question. So they did experiments, and it turns out the number one draw for the varroa mite is the adult bee. So moving this along, here's what they did. They froze an adult bee and extracted its essence by using a solvent, and then they took what was left, the carcass, and put it back. The remaining carcass of the adult bee was not attractive to the mite whatsoever, so they knew it had something to do with the essences that they had extracted. This is not necessarily accurate, but for the purpose of illustration, let me put this in another way so you're not lost in case you're wondering what I'm talking about. They separated the liquids of the bee from the solids, solids being the hard stuff left over if you could wring out a bee of all its juices. You know, sorry, touch graphic, but illustrative nonetheless. So what did this prove? The mites were not interested in the leftover solids. In a nutshell, they determined the attractant for the mite was in the juices. So here's the interesting part. 
They then took the extracted essences, the juices, and put it back on the bee, and it didn't work as an attractant. It actually served as a repellent for the mite, which is an interesting find. They had to figure out what to do next, and the next evolution of the experiment was to take the extracted essences and freeze it to see if they could figure out what it contained. Somewhere in there is the attractant to the mite. They froze the essence and spun it out into its separate parts. The frozen concoction separated resulted in a liquid part that he referred to as a liquor and a solid part. These two separations are referred to as fractions. So now that I spent all that time telling you that, let me tell you what happened. The liquid fraction placed back on the carcass was a repellent. Mites would have nothing to do with it. The solid part, however, was an attractant. Now let's think about the possibilities of that. They now have something that is a mite attractant. And they also have something that can be used as a repellent, all made from the compound of an adult honeybee, which exists in the hive. So this is what they're going to try next. Dr. Teal suggested that they were going to investigate if they could come up with a push pull system for dealing with the Varroa mite. This is exciting science. I'm going to let him say it this time. And that is really, uh, I'm going to say it again, cool. There's not much to say after that one. <laughs> For segment number three, we keep this one brief. I wanted to talk about a recent meeting we had in the wintertime, can't get out too much, so we had a movie night for the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, and our topic was similar to the one we were just discussing, the small hive beetle. The small hive beetle was a big problem in our area last year. For the first time in New Jersey, we generally don't see that many of them, or at least to the point where we don't start having hives succumb to the pressures of a small hive beetle. We had an extremely warm winter, at least it seemed that way, in 2011 and 2012 start. And it seemed like a lot of folks had small hive beetle problems in our area, and there was a lot of discussion about trying to get up to speed on them here, not something we're overly familiar with. We showed the small hive beetle problem video uh, from Mike Embry. He's from the University of Maryland. Similar to our climate, he's in the mid-Atlantic, and he discussed the different type of traps, the different type of physiology and, and information you would need in order to understand the whole circle of life for the small hive beetle. To that end, we put together a resource on our website. If you go to nwba.njbeekeepers.org, and we'll have a link to this in our show notes, we put together a small hive beetle resource guide. There's the Handbook of the Small Hive Beetle provided by Clemson, University of Arkansas, Managing Small Hive Beetles. Jennifer Berry had a feature, Bee Culture, October 2009, 2009, Small Hive Beetle, and a couple other resources, including an image from extension.org that shows the life cycle. So as you get ready for the 2013 beekeeping season, if you're like us and you're in the winter break right now looking at spring looming 
and you want to get up to speed, you can go there and look at a couple of things. There's also a link there to Jamie Ellis, a video field guide to beekeeping series, episode number three with small hive beetles. Jamie Ellis is often referred to in the beekeeping lore as one of the most uh, prevalent and versed persons in small hive beetles. He's down in Florida where they have a huge problem with them there. And if you want to look for one single resource to get up to speed, you could probably go look Jamie Ellis up on the web also. So I mentioned you could pick things up at our show notes, so let me take a moment to give some of the contact information out for the first time this episode. You can go to our website, www.bkcorner.org, where you can send me an email at kevin at bkcorner.org. Please let me know how to pronounce your name and where you're contacting us from. You could also call and leave us a phone mail. 609-460-4037 is the phone number. Again, our website, www.bkcorner.org. Okay, let's keep things moving. We'll go to segment number four, Hive Form Factors. First thing I want to talk about is the top bar hive, which I'm in the middle of constructing. I think I mentioned in past episodes that I had a bunch of scrap lumber around from someone who had put in an oak floor. And I think I have some pine pieces too. They're all tongue in a groove. They've been sitting up in the loft in my attic forever. I transferred them over from our old house before we moved over here. And I finally decided I was going to put them to good use. I've built the sides and I've built the ends and I'm just about ready to assemble them. I have to give a special shout out to Phil Chandler from the BioBees.com website. Phil has his own beekeeping podcast. He had some plans available, as I have no idea what it takes to build a top bar hive, and went and did some research and was able to leverage his design. So the thing that I have in mind, while I am trying to build a top bar hive to its truest form, Unlike a Tanzanian hive, it has tapered sides, but I think the dimension on the top can be adjusted correctly and not take it too much out of the original design to be able to put a Langstroth hive box on top. The benefit of that, of course, is that I could potentially use this hive in a combination to do a bunch of nukes on the top or any other configuration if it will accept a Langstroth top. So I'm trying to keep that in mind if it works in the design of how wide I set the sides apart and how I build the framing around to be able to set the frames in, then so be it. I guess at some point when I get finished with the design, if I accomplish this, I'll be able to show everybody pictures through the website and uh, maybe shoot a little bit video for the YouTube channel. So Top Bar Hive, still a work in progress. The next thing I want to talk about is nuke boxes. Our association was cleaning out their shed and there was a bunch of old rotted standard deep boxes available. The problem with these boxes is most of them at the joints where they overlapped had rotted or been pried upon in the corner so many times that they became weakened and the boxes really weren't usable. If you put them in they had big holes where the bees could escape. and So here's the key to this. If you have the opportunity to get any of these boxes where the corners are damaged on a large deep, 
What you really could use these for is to cut the middle sections out to build nucleus hives. So I took one big box and I cut the sides and the uh, fronts apart where the width is to the right and left of the handheld. The key thing about this is that's the thing that you can't do as a beekeeper who does woodworking unless you have a special jig or some sort of tool that lets you cut the handhelds out. Now I know that when I cut them straight down the side and I match them up to some other boards that I've cut to shape for the size of a nucleus hive, that of course it's not going to be jointed, but for a nuke box I think that's completely fine. I was even more ambitious to cut this out and make two nuke boxes. I took the scraps and put together a bottom board. And I happened to have the right size mesh in the garage to be able to build the bottom board. Now I'm thinking about the inner and outer cover for a nucleus hive and when I look over here to my right at the Brushy Mountain catalog that I have, I have to say that I don't think I can build the top pieces for the cost that I could buy them out of the catalog. And I need to buy some frames to put in there. So I'll order a top cover and an inner cover for my nuke setup. So net net, take old boxes if you have them, if they're damaged on the corners or they're not working well, and don't throw them away. Repurpose them and get those handhelds uh, that you need for your nucleus hives. The next thing I want to talk about is called a clear hive concept. When I was at the ABF conference, there was a vendor there selling these corner brackets that you would use. Very similar to the discussion I just had about straight sides and not overlap joints to join a box together. This allows you to use these metal, I don't know if the right word is bracket, on all four corners and you put screws in or nails and it holds the box together that way. The fascinating thing is they had on display there one of them that had a plexiglass insert. Hmm. Makes me think about our presentations at the fair. How cool would it be to be in the demo box and have a clear box that you load a hive into? The expectation is, is that you can put this box in there and cover it up to the point where it's covered but when you're doing the presentation you could pull the cover off and people could see in through the frames and the configuration much like an observation hive but this is a full-size demonstration unit so we took a bunch of different pictures and we talked to the vendor for the brackets you commonly see them in the B journal so um, I don't have my notes with me to say who the vendor was, but the key thing here is that we think we can and plan to build a clear hive for the fall, next fall when we get to our beekeeping fairs. As an aside, at the American Beekeeping Federation Conference, they had their box, and what they found out is it was held in Hershey, Pennsylvania. We were in the Hershey Lodge. They could take a traditional Hershey bar that was upscaled. They sell those big monster ones that are like the size of a huge tablet and use the brackets and they literally built a hive out of the Hershey bars. It was really cool promotion for them and really neat. I think I took a picture of that. I'll have to put it in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about.
that will also tell you whose brackets they are and you can see uh, the bracket company so last one for high form factors there's been discussion in the past about foam hives i've seen them before never really impressed with them and a beekeeper salesperson in our area we said he tried them for a period of time and the squirrels ate them things ate them and i suppose if you put something out in the woods that had that they'd be susceptible to that there was a new vendor at abf one that i hadn't seen before that had a different form factor and i have to say that the styrofoam composite was a different material you can have styrofoam like a styrofoam cooler that if you grabbed hold of it and squeezed it you could pinch it closed and it would indent and while it's strong and usually okay that's the old form factor hive design these new ones were very hard the outer edge was almost like plastic and then to top it off they had a hive design there where they had sprayed it with the material that you use to protect a bed liner to make it virtually impervious to anything that you're going to do now i guess the downside of that is here you have a styrofoam box which is insulative that's even a word and it's covered with this black material i don't know what the heat aspect of that is but i've always wondered and if you went back to the langstroth design of his hives his hives were double walled and they had some sort of insulation on the top the original design from langstroth was to have some sort of insulation properties he also had his hives up in the air sitting on some sort of hive stand contraption almost like a mound where the air could flow underneath around the hives to ventilate them so keep an open mind for hive form factors will this foam hive design work it's certainly a great improvement over the existing ones that i had seen in the past and the concept and and i just have to say this the theme of the episode is cool when you sprayed it with the bed liner i think every single person who walked by walked past went back reached over and touched that hive and pet it and massaged it because it just looked cool it was a neat surface for a hive and a neat look they really hit on something by spraying it with that material so maybe in the future you'll see those in the beekeeping catalogs I, i'm not quite sure but uh, i have to say i think i took some pictures of those too and i'll have to dig them up the problem is is all that stuff that i got from abf I have no idea where I put it. I'm a little disheveled right now. Anyway, so high form factors. We'll have the top bar hive hopefully by the next episode done. Going to finish putting together the nuke boxes and get those frames in place. Going to have to put on the to-do list to build the clear hive concept. And somewhere down the line, if um, somebody is nice, they'll let me buy one of these foam hive designs and check it out. We'll have to see how that works. So... Segment number four, Hive Form Factors, comes to a close. It's time for the roundtable section of our podcast. This is where we go over a number of things to close out the episode in no particular order. Roundtable number one, video podcasting. Had the pleasure of doing a podcast with the Kiwi Mana podcast folks, Gary Fawcett is the main principle there gary has recently invited us for round number two 
The first one was kind of a trial between he and I. The way it works is we log in and do a video podcast using a feature available from Google+. It actually affords the opportunity for you to watch live and to come in and watch a chat program or participate in a chat to ask us questions while we're having a roundtable discussion. The next one is going to be scheduled for this weekend. If you're listening to the podcast after this weekend, I guess that's not much value, but it's February 23rd, 2013. It's a 5 p.m. start. We will post information on our website with directions on how you can get there and listen. We're probably going to send you over to Kiwi Mana as uh, Gary has all his information set up. It should be a rather interesting roundtable. I am from the U.S., of course. Gary is from New Zealand, and Phil Chandler is going to join us from the U.K., so we'll get a bunch of different perspectives on that. And we're putting together a number of topics to bounce off of each other, and who knows where the conversation will take us. Again, you can get a link to how to participate at our show notes at www.bkcorner.org. Actually, as I look at it, I think I can cut to the chase and give you the link right now. HTTP colon slash slash kiwimana.co.nz slash live chat, all one word. Kiwimana, K-I-W-I-M-A-N-A dot C-O dot N-Z slash live chat, all one word. If you go there at 5 p.m. Eastern time, if I have the information correct, we will, you'll be able to participate in the live video cast. Topic number two for the roundtable, the New Jersey beekeeping calendar. A special thanks goes out to New Jersey State Apiarist Tim Schuler. He's been working on this idea for many years and finally it comes to fruition. So good for him on his perseverance on this. One of our members from our association helped Tim put this together and a bunch of people submitted the pictures that were used throughout and on each month it tells you what you should be doing for your beekeeping activities for the state of New Jersey. I would imagine that most of you in the Northeast, if you're in the Mid-Atlantic region, that this would be pretty close for you also. So if you happen to get your hands on them, uh, you can probably leverage that. I did get a photo submitted in January. I am the month of January. It has a picture of one of our hives and the funny thing is, is the high, the uh, calendar got released about mid-January, and now it's February. Nobody saw the picture, but uh, so it goes. It's always a lot of fun, and congrats to Tim for finally pulling that off. And like the calendar that's released yearly for uh, the Bee Culture magazine, this one is planned to be an annual event. So if you're in New Jersey and you have an option to take some photos and send them over, you can contact Tim Schuler and... The information comes from the New Jersey Beekeepers Association, who's helping Tim with that effort already for the 2014 beekeeping calendar year. Topic number three, the 2013 follow-up. Our last episode we had promised by the end of the year, but it did not materialize, to talk about what our key objectives are for 2013 at the beekeeper's corner and in the brand hollow apiary. So let me touch on those and I'll kind of keep this brief. 
First thing to do for the 2013 season is assess this feeding scenario that I talked about a little bit earlier and whether that was a viable experiment and what the outcome was. It will guide me in what I'm going to do later this year for feeding the bees and also in my routines for honey harvesting. Am I going to harvest honey at some point to put back on to help supplemental feed in the fall? Am I going to forego feeding in the fall given a decent nectar flow? Those are one of the objectives that has to be ferreted out here for 2013. Number two, seven to ten hives on the property. Right now we have three. I want to take that up. And when I say hives, I guess I use that as a loose term. Uh, we have a brand new cedar hive to put in. We're going to have the top bar hive. I have two to three nukes that we have. I have a standard Langstroth sitting in there. And I was contemplating even somewhere along the season building a were hive. I'm in this place where I want to experiment and learn about all the different forms and form factors and features of the different hives. And I figured this is what I want to do. I will always maintain two, three, four Langstroth hives that will keep the core of the organization going while I learn and experiment with the other form factors. To carry the theme from 2012, but do it better in 2013, is split, split, splits. There's many different ways to do splits. I tried one. It was successful in one aspect and not in another. And just going through and seeing what Michael Bush explained, there's probably 10 ways to split your hives. And I'm fascinated to find out um, what some of these other techniques are, the pros and cons. Swarm prevention is going to be a big theme that I'm trying to bring back to our association this year. So I'm going to do a lot of research for a presentation that we'll probably do in the spring. Again, Michael Bush had a really good uh, insight on that and provided that information. And it's always a topic of discussion, especially this year. Something's come up in New Jersey where they're proposing specific guidelines where people are going to say, and, and I don't want to go crazy on this, but if you have a quarter acre, three hives is enough bees to have on your property. If you use that as a rule of thumb, what happens if your hives swarm? Then you're going to have four hives, and you're going to kind of violate that principle if that's what the true principle is going to end up being. So the question is, as a beekeeper with a quarter acre and three hives, how do you prevent your hives from swarming? That is something you probably want to know. Now, I say that, and I want to let the cat out of the bag. They've been working on a draft legislation for people to use in different municipalities if you come in and you want to set some sort of ordinance guidance. And that is the number that they came up with. They're proposing it's a very draft thing, so I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but... Um, one of the questions that came up is if you have three hives and they swarm, are you allowed to put a fourth on your property and all of those conversations? Whatever the case may be and whatever the outcome of that is, it sure would be nice to arm the beekeeper, especially the backyard beekeeper, with information on how to keep their hives from swarming. Might away quick strips. I have no experience in that. Most of it is a practical aspect because I had Apigard and as I've said on this podcast I wasn't going to let it go to waste it expired last year I used the final of it 
and now I have no chemical ways to do mites, which suits me just well. But as a full-fledged experienced beekeeper, this year I do want to try Mite Away Quick Strips if I have a reason to treat for hives. So I'm going to venture into there. And finally, drum roll please. My number one objective is to move to foundationless going forward and possibly small cell. I have my reasons, which I will share with you in a few minutes, but I've been envisioning this foundationless future where I'm going to pull frames out and the springtime nectar flow is the perfect time to get on that agenda. You take an empty frame, you put it between two built out frames and the bees will build it down and fill it out properly. Um, my friend Bob, who I speak often about on this podcast, he's running Foundationless. I want to say this, you know, there's always this big deal about there's Kumafos and Fluvalinate in the hives. It comes with the wax and so on and so forth. One of the things that I will say is I really don't see that as a big deal. Yes, it's probably true, but I still don't see it as a big deal. And I'm not going to get fussy over that. I have my reasons, which I'll explain in a bit, why I want to go foundationless. So that is the number one objective for 2013, and that is something that's going to take time to build out and experiment with. Quite frankly, moving to a top bar hive, it is foundationless by design. So we will have foundationless here in the Brand Hollow Apiary. Roundtable number four. One more segment before we get to closing comments. I wanted to discuss... Michael Bush went to see him this past weekend, and thanks to the Philadelphia Beekeepers Guild for hosting him, it was an informative session, and I'm going to say this with no dig against anyone. I've seen different beekeepers speak, and a lot of them have information to say, but they really don't have anything fascinating to say. Uh, Michael Bush is a different guy. Michael is very insightful, and he's also looked at systematically what's going on in the hive for many different aspects. I've seen Michael's presentation, specifically the one that we saw in Philadelphia, on the hive uh, in Vimeo, which I've talked about in the past, for Prince Rogers, I believe it is, Vimeo channel. It's equivalent to YouTube. He gave the same presentation, and then he gave two separate ones, but it's insightful to think about things that I think I've touched upon, but he really puts it all together in a major package. I so wish that I could share the video for this, but I believe, in fact, I'm confident that Philadelphia did film him, and I'm going to guess that they're going to put that up at their website, and you can actually go see it. If you ever have the chance to go see Michael in person please support him and go see him as he's evolving his take and he also has written a book which I'm gathering is probably very good although I don't personally own it whatever the case may be Michael had a different slant not radical but a different slant about the ecology inside the hive and you know I have a passion for is the Langstroth hive the right answer and have we gone far enough to address what's really going on in the hive? Heat control, biology inside the hive, our treatments and interference, the actual substructure of frames and the way that it works and so on. And I thought that uh, Michael's presentation was very insightful. You know, let me just give you a taste of it. He talked about 
feeding sugar water to the bees versus the aspects of honey. You know, as I just said a moment ago, I'm a big proponent of giving them their honey back. Honey is not sugar water. Honey has different things that you get from the plant that provide subsets of what goes on ecology-wise inside the hive. Sugar water is just sugar water. But the key thing that he pulled out was the pH balance. Sugar water has a different pH than honey. And it allows fosters could potentially contribute to different ecology in the hive. Different yeasts will live in there. Different bacteria and biology will grow in the sugar water where it would not grow in a different pH honey. Right? So fascinating pieces. If you take that little subject and then blow it up through all the subsystems, that's the Michael Bush conversation. So I really thought he did a great job at presenting his points and at talking about it. Now, he didn't have solutions for anything or everything. He offered his insights and his adjustments and expectations. And quite frankly, his comments about things like essential oils and other, they really give you perspective to think, yes, anything that you're putting in the hive that wouldn't be there in nature, you are somehow tweaking the ecology inside the hive and it's something that maybe we don't pay enough attention to so that's my short summary i said it was going to be short of the michael bush presentation really enjoyed it and if you have the opportunity go to vimeo search for him or go to the philadelphia beekeepers guild i looked just before i was recording this it isn't up there yet i filmed him filmed is a relative term i recorded him digitally but I don't have permission to present that. Um, actually, what I'm going to do is offer my recording to the Philadelphia Guild in case they didn't uh, get a good recording themselves, and they can present it out to the public if that's what they want to do. I did not get to speak to Michael and ask him if that was possible, so hence the reason I'm trying to respect his uh, ability to go out on the speaking tour. If everybody has videos of everything that he talks about, then... You could just watch videos. But, you know, I'll say in defense of that, I think these presentations that they do live in person, the fact that you can ask a question in the audience based on what you're seeing and absorbing, you're hearing what other people are saying, and the ability that you can walk out in the hallway during one of the breaks and walk up and shake his hand and thank him for what he does and ask him a question directly that's on your mind. That's what it's all about. That's why you go and attend these things in person. And you have a real-time, immediate saturation with other beekeepers who are experiencing it in the moment. It's so worth it. I mean, you know, a video presentation that you watch on the web in your own home, okay. But being there in person, it's worth the money. And support these guys. This is why they do these things. Okay, that's enough of that. Thank you, Michael Bush. Okay, finally coming to closing comments in the roundtable. I'll start with two parts here. First one, some things that I learned at ABF that has changed the way I think. Maybe not necessarily, but they have me spinning. First one is bottom boards. Over and over again through different presentations, I heard this repeated. Screen bottom boards really aren't all they're cracked up to be. And I say to myself, 
they're not effective can that really be true if you take one of the inserts and you slide it underneath and put Vaseline on it and do nothing in your hives leave them be and slide that out you will find Varroa mite on there that's my personal experience and personally I'm gonna find my personal experience trumps what anybody's gonna tell me because it's tangible I could feel it taste it smell it but over and over again I heard that they are not effective mite control methods I'm not sure why everybody's on this kick, but specifically, I got to speak to Manhattan Nasser, a well-known bee research scientist who is now up in Canada, and this guy is sharp. When he saw his presentation, he knows what he's talking about. His comment to me, kind of through a sly little grin, was, why would a mite fall off of a bee? It's like you walking down the street, why would you fall down? Now, we do know that bees groom and do all of these things, but the fact of the matter is he feels that mites stay on the bees, and it's really no challenge for them to do that, so it's hardly likely that they're all going to be falling off and getting knocked off and just taking nose dives and falling through. Okay, that's a reasonable assumption of that. The other thing I specifically asked him was about powdered sugar. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I have a pension for that and still believe that it works. He was not a fan. <laughs> Appropriate thing. And I'm wondering if I need to give up the ghost. But you know what? If I have this as my personal idiosyncrasy that I still believe in it, it's do no harm. Now, one thing that was suggested to me is as you put the powdered sugar in throughout the whole hive, you're disrupting their activity while they have to clean up the mess. I say, well, part of that is the whole reason you want to do it, because as they clean up the mess, they're grooming themselves. Uh, to each his own on the philosophy, but I'll leave it at that. Mite treatment effectiveness, mechanical, chemical, whatever method you're going to choose. One of the things that I heard repeatedly at ABF is there's a 9 to 1 ratio of mites in the cells for drones to other bees. That's a fascinating topic. I'm kind of against this whole drone culling thing because they're making drones for the purpose of having drones as backups. But in some respect, if 90% of all the drones or 90% of all the mites are in with the drones and you cull those, you are having a significant impact on the mite population in the hive. Couple that with the often repeated percentage of bees that are carrying mites. So let me explain this. The adult bees running around in the hives that have a mite on their back, 20% of all the mites in the hive environment are on bees. The rest of them, 80%, are in cells somewhere. That's the general, uh, how do you say it, just the general rule of thumb on that. We always say to you that if you are seeing bees with mites on them, wow, you have a huge infestation. You have a really serious problem. Now, they go through the measuring prospect of X number of bees, X number of mites. You get to your threshold. We've talked about that many times here. If only 20% of all the mites are riding on the backs or bottoms or whatever of bees, and you're doing a sample and you're getting that percentage, the question is how accurate are these readings? 
And if nine out of ten mites are hiding themselves in the drones, then drone culling has been called out as an effective mean to really make an impact on the population of mites inside the hive. That's a fascinating aspect. Something that has to be explored a little further. Because I was really against the prospect of cutting all the drones out. And now I might rethink that. Next thing and final thing I'll touch upon is small cell. Now, there was this whole theory that small cell, well, first off, one thing it takes care of is a smaller bee, physically smaller bee, is going to have smaller spiracles, which are the air holes, and therefore the tracheal mite will not be able to get in the hole and compromise the bee. That's a common reason why smaller bees are there. But if you think about the Americanized bee, they wanted to make them bigger brutes so that they can fly farther and bring more honey in. It's an effective control method for Varroa to go to smaller bees. Not because of Varroa have a problem with the smaller size bee, but this. It's a known quantity that smaller cells create smaller bees, and it takes less time for them to go from egg to hatch. And the less time is less conducive for Varroa to do what they have to do. Why is it 9 to 1 ratio that the Varroa is in the drones? Drones have a longer incubation time. And the female mite can lay and create better when they have a longer incubation time. So if you're going to smaller cell and you have shorter incubation time, that's the right word, I'm not even sure. For Varroa, that's not a good thing. You know how you get smaller cell? You either go to small cell foundation or you consider foundationless. And what they find is over time, the bees will build smaller cells if they are foundationless. Maybe it's all coming together now, but you could see where my changes in thinking are going for 2013. So I'll leave you with that to think about, and I wanted to uh, touch upon what I said at the opening I would discuss, which is just the short break that we've taken here. Um, I think the last podcast was sometime in December, and as I'm recording this, we're approaching the end of March. I don't always, um, maybe this is not an appealing thing to do, but I find myself explaining sometimes, because I feel a little bit guilty about these things. This is just me being me. Um, I, I will say that I went to the beekeeping conference in January. Subsequently, and I don't advertise these things, I was out in San Diego for work for a period of time. And then I got home and I was sick. And uh, I have a very demanding job. And my job has been just off the charts crazy with some things. As January and February are really busy time periods for the type of work that I do. So... It also spells the time of year that beekeeping is on hiatus, but I'm doing all the stuff in prep for the season, and I am a member of a soccer organization, and I maintain the website for online registration, which is going this week, and you can do the math. A lot of things interfere with the probability that we'll be consistent over the wintertime. I will say this. Part of it is maybe a forced um, break because it helps me to rejuvenate and do research and take my time to 
just take a break from the podcast and the demands of this. There is quite a bit going on, and one of the things that I did do over the break was I've been looking at a replacement website which hasn't gone well, and I'm not necessarily ready to go there yet, so I'm still staying with what I have and researching my options. I've also been looking into ways to improve some of the things that we did. So I have a new microphone set up. Maybe that shows up in this uh, recording. I'm working on a new video setup, and I'm doing the research for some of those other things. Uh, I'm also working on all the backups and processing. And so all in the context of making a better podcast, there's so many things going on and no rest for the weary. But uh, for those of you that sent messages, I literally got messages like, are you still alive? Is there something wrong? What happened to you? Um, I'm I'm well and fine. I am a recluse sometimes, recluse, I don't know how to say that word, but um, I am working behind the scenes, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and I am really excited, and I do expect that, uh, you know, as the weather starts to warm up for us, which is right around the corner, March, middle of March is generally the time frame where we come out of hibernation, uh, there's quite a bit of beekeeping stuff going on. The other thing that's going on is, active participant in our beekeepers association we have meetings set up literally every month on a bunch of different topics and i think in preparation for the podcast and those meetings we'll be able to keep the content flowing through the remainder of 2013 so hang in there with me i hope you enjoyed the podcast i realize we're approaching uh hour and 15 so time to bring it to a close uh thanks everybody for listening and i'll just end it there We'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.